We're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off. Now, we've been in this series, The New Man, for a long time, and we've shifted. We've put, taken the focus off of us for a while, of who we are in Christ, and began to focus more so on our responsibilities for being in Christ. And we've been reading this verse out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. But they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We're picking up on this idea of spiritual warfare because we are God's ambassadors in this earth. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It is our responsibility as a born-again believer to go and expand the church. Not Grace Church, the church, big C. We reach people for the kingdom of God. How do we do that? We do it by talking to them. We do it by praying for them. We, we're, and when we do those things, we're doing spiritual warfare. If you've read Mark chapter 4 or Luke chapter 8 with the parable of the sowers, it's talking about sowing the word. The seed is the word. We sow the word. But what happens? The birds of the air, the devil comes to take the seed from their heart lest they believe and be saved. You see, we're on a mission from God to go out and spread the Word of God. And we, in order to do that, we have to cast seed, right? Have you ever met a farmer who goes out there and stares at the field and says, boy, I really hope we have a good harvest this year without putting seed in the ground? I hope not. Because maybe the humidity is getting to them or something. I don't know. But the bottom line is, is that we have a responsibility. And it is something we should take seriously. You know, when you realize how much you've been forgiven for, you're a lot more merciful to the others. And you care about people a lot more. You begin to look in the heart of somebody and see them and realize that every person that you meet is somebody that Jesus died for. And if that's the case, then you have a responsibility to tell them about that and why that's important. But the problem we have in the church today is we don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. So we don't do it. We make excuses not to do it. We're like, well, they know me too well, or I don't want to offend them, or all of that kind of stuff. Listen, if you're going to offend somebody with something, let it be the gospel. I would rather have somebody hate me for the things of God than for me to show them this, this quote-unquote love and loving them the way they are and have them be in hell. You can hate me all you want. Every day, guys, you know, we have an opportunity in this life to go out there and serve God by the things that we do. We make the choice whether to do it or not. Unfortunately, too often we choose not. And this is what it's talking about. We are doing spiritual warfare. We don't walk according to the flesh. We walk in the flesh. But we do battle according to God. And the, uh, uh, the, the casting down of arguments and every high thing exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Our weapons are not carnal. We have to get that. So we have focused more so on these four questions. The first one being, who is God? The second one is, who am I in relationship to God? The third one is, how do I worship Him? Did we just do worship? Yeah, we did. How did we do it? We did it with songs. Is that the only way? No. 
We live our lives as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, acceptable to Him. We worship God in all that we do. Everything, right? You hear me say that every week. I pray that in everything, with every fiber of our being, that we worship God with that. We lay it down. But the last thing we've been working on and looking at is who is my enemy? And the one thing that we have established, and I hope you picked up on it by now, is that people are not your enemy. Okay, It is the spiritual forces. Those are the things that we are after. Now, I know this is exactly the Mother's Day sermon you were hoping for, right? Let's talk about the devil, right? Because you probably bore some devils, right? Children, you with me? Tough crowd. Okay, I went right over y'all's head. Maybe you've never been to my house because I got a couple of you. You don't know what that's like. Come on over sometime. We'll show you the spawns of Satan themselves, okay? You know how they say that, the, uh, the, uh, that children are a blessing from the Lord? That's a faith verse at times. Oh, I see her. She's, 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 she's trying to silently not head nod and agree with me because she feels it. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. So when we focus on this, we're looking at who is our enemy, and it's not people. And so we've been looking at who is the devil, what we call him, what his name was. And what we've realized that it's not Lucifer and it's not Satan. Those are descriptions of him. And so now we're beginning to shift this focus on, on the different attributes of where and how he came to be. Because what is he? What did he look like? Well, he's not this little guy with red horns and a pitchfork, right? He is a cherub, the anointed cherub. And we're going to focus more on this over the next couple of weeks. But he was an angel. It describes him. Four wings, four faces, hooves like a, a, a cow. I mean, it's like a weird-looking thing. But we've got this image in our mind of this ugly, ugly thing. And I'll show you why here in a little bit as we go through this of where these ideas have actually come from so you have a better idea. Now, as we do this, what I ask you is we always do what Acts 17.11 tells us. And Acts 17.11 says this, These were more fair-minded than those who were in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Well, that's what we got to do. I know in doing this, there's a lot of preconceived notions of what we've been talking about. A lot of um, things that have been passed down that we just kind of take for granted and we never ask questions. But the reality is we need to go to the Word and we need to do what the Word says. And so in that, we're going to answer this question today. Why did Satan fall? Lucifer, Beelzebub, whatever you want to call him. What caused him to fall? In order to answer this, we go to Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, here's what he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is what he said in his heart. These are the five I will statements. I will do this. I will do that. He is making a declaration, but it's in his heart. He's going to ascend into heaven, exalt his throne above the stars of God. That's, a, that's language used for angels, okay? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation. What is that? I mean, no, many of you guys have read this, but you never actually looked into what is the mount of congregation, and on the farther sides of the north. What does the north have to do with anything? Okay, we're going to look at this so you guys can understand this. I'm going to ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Who is the Most High? That is God Himself. I'll be like Him. You can't be greater, but He thinks He can be like Him. Now, 
as we go through this, you're going to see these things come full circle. Because ultimately, what caused Satan to fall? It was pride. We broke this down into its simplest form. It was this pride. And the Bible has so many verses talking about pride and how we shouldn't have it. I mean, look at this. Let's just go through some of these. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's a big word. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Let's keep going. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the next one, Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I think I got some more. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I think we got a few more, don't we? Yeah, Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 2 Timothy 3, 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Guys, we could go on and on and on and on. The Bible is so clear about pride. What's it tell you to do? Avoid it. Avoid it with all that you can because it causes you to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And it is an easy trap to fall into. If you're good at anything, what do we naturally want to do? We want to tell everybody about it, right? It goes to your head. When you do something well, people come up and they tell you, oh, you're so great at this or whatever and, and things like that. When I was a young man, I used to play the drums and I was pretty good at it. Um, I got a chance to play on the different things and all of that. But every time somebody would come in, they would tell me, it's like, man, you are one of the best drummers I've ever heard. What did that do to my ego? It made my head not get out the doors of the church by the end of service. I mean, it was, I mean, it's a pretty big head anyway, so it's a tough pull as it goes. You know, if somebody asks me what hat size I wear, I tell them extra large square. So anyway, but it's one of those things that it puffs up. The reason that they remove leaven during Passover is leaven is a symbol of sin because what does leaven do to bread? It puffs it up. Pride is at the root of all sin. And look at our culture today. What do they tell you you need to do? You need to have good self-esteem. Now think about that. When you break that word down, what does that mean? You need to esteem yourself highly. But what does the Bible say? We esteem Him highly. You see the difference? We fall into these traps. We're always looking like we need to have a good self-image. I don't want a good self-image. I want an image that represents Christ. That's all I care about, right? I mean, some people spend so much time working out and trying to get fit. I'm trying to make the temple of God bigger so he's got a little room. He can kick his feet up. That's what I'm working on. We've got some extra donuts in the other room. Where do you think those are going today? 
straight to someone's hips, right? No. But guys, this is the thing, is that we are in a culture that basically we, we put ourselves against everybody else. We compare ourselves to everybody else. We take our everyday life and compare it to somebody else's highlight reel. You know where you find somebody else's highlight reel? Turn on Facebook or Instagram. I don't have that, so I'm not exactly sure how it works. What do they do? They portray themselves as some wise sage or this perfect mother, right? I actually saw somebody the one time. Okay, they took a picture of one corner of their house, and I mean, it was spotless and immaculate. But I had been in their house an hour before and saw the other corners. But they were just putting something like, I love having a neat house and looking clean. And even with four kids, I managed to keep up and all of that. And I'm like, that's a lie. It's a lie. I mean, this is where we are. We're constantly looking for affirmation. But when I know who I am in relationship to God, I don't need your affirmation. I want His. I want Him to tell me that I'm approved in His sight. And He only does that once I'm born again because all my, everything I do and everything I bring to the table is nothing but filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness that Christ gives us. I'm getting off on a tangent here, but you guys see where I'm going. This pride thing is a problem. Let me tell you one more story, just moving forward. This is weird, okay? So y'all stay with me, and I'm not telling you this like this is for, for real or anything, but it makes sense. There, I was listening to a podcast. I listened to a lot of podcasts, okay? I was listening to a podcast, and they interviewed a guy who was an ex-high warlock in the satanic church, okay? All right? So yeah, I know a lot of you are like, ooh, okay then, yeah. And he, was, he, he worked his way up, and I don't remember how all of that worked, but he actually got into that, that church when he was 12 years old. And then he would do all of these things, and he's telling all of these stories. I have no reason not to believe him. I mean, but his job, or what his mission, his, they called it a coven, um, would, what they would do is they would go out and split up churches deliberately. And there were three things that they would do. One of them would be a sexual component. They would get in there, get somebody, and they'd make an accusation against the pastor or against somebody else, okay? Another one would be financial. They would get in there and start doing stuff and getting people questioning where the money was going and all of that. But the third one is what shocked me. The first two I could believe. The third one shocked me. I never thought about this, but it makes perfect sense. If you had to guess of the third one, you're probably thinking all sorts of different things, but I promise you it is not this one. The third one is they would use is gossip. They would get in there and begin to tell stories. They would join the church. They'd begin to tell stories and get people pitting against each other. And get, it would eventually get so bad that the church would end up split over something. And they knew that if that church split did not reform as another church within 12 months, that there's an 89% likelihood it wouldn't. I mean, they knew their numbers. Now, gossip. Now, what is gossip? What's at the root of gossip? It is pride. Like, did you hear about so-and-so? What does the Bible say about gossips? Avoid it. Stay away from it. Don't do it. This pride thing is a huge problem. Paul addresses this. Paul talks about this a lot. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, he's, he's kind of going on. He's saying, listen, you think you're something. Listen to me. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two 22, and verse 30, it says, Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's 39 for you that aren't good at math. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Besides the other things what comes upon me daily. My deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? Weak, and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and do not and I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. What Paul's doing is he's laying it down here, guys. Like you think you're something? Like you think you've done something? I mean, there as an example, you know, we're so weak and pathetic in America because we, we're so easily offended, and, and that if, if somebody doesn't like us for our Christianity, we feel like we are being persecuted. Right now, there's a pastor in prison over in Turkey. He'd been over there as a pastor for 25 years. They have falsely imprisoned him. He's been in prison for three years and pretty much gets beaten daily, and there have been fighting to get him released. That is persecution, not getting unfriended on Facebook. Okay? We don't know. This is what Paul went through for the sake of the gospel. What have you gone through for the sake of God? What does it cost you? What have you given up? Nothing, right? We've got it good here. Our biggest complaint is if the air conditioner is not working right, right? We've got it pretty good. Well, then in the next chapter, he goes on to verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we're not going to get into what this thorn in the flesh was, but it is not sickness. I'll just tell you that right now. That has nothing to do with it. But why was this given to him? To keep him humble. I mean... Paul had a relationship with Jesus. He appears to him to begin with. He meets with him another time. He goes off into the, the wilderness for two years, and Jesus has kind of given him the lay of the land of what he's going to be doing. He had a unique relationship, and it would begin to get really easy to get a big head. I mean, you've seen this, guys. If you followed any of these TV preachers and things like that, they start typically with humble beginnings and start good. And the whole message is about Jesus. But before long, it becomes about them. It turns, it shifts, and it's easy to do because you've got all these people telling you how great you are and how smart you are. Not that we shouldn't give compliments, but we need to be able to take them in stride. Why do we do what we do? We do it for the sake of Jesus. What did he do for us? He gave his life. So who should get the credit for any good that we do? It should be him. We weren't saved by good works. We were saved to them by the work that he did. Paul is boasting in his weakness so that God can be shown as strong. Like, listen, I just did something that a normal person couldn't because I'm weak and God is strong. That's the reason I was able to do it. I mean, I, I, when you guys hear me, I was extremely shy. Like, you don't, most people can never believe that. I didn't like to talk in front of people. You know, I've told you this before, but um, the number one uh, fear in America with people is public speaking. Number two is dead. 
right? So they would rather die than stand up in front of a crowd. Well, that was me. I'd rather die than stand up in front of a crowd because I was like, no, they, they ain't got nothing. But the Lord worked through me, and now I have no trouble with it. But it's because of Him. I'm a completely different person. So what we say and do has little to do with one's ability, but the ability, that the strength that is in Christ. That's the thing that we have to get. We see this further illustrated in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 4, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? When th- who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Paul, again, is showing us that man is involved in nothing. Yes, we have a part to play. Some of us sow seed, some of us water seed. But sometimes that when it comes, and we're talking about fruit, like people giving their lives to Christ, sometimes you happen to be the person, the right place, the right time. But there has been years of prayer and people talking to them, and you're receiving the benefit. I, I get nothing for that. It was him. Who waters, who does that, doesn't matter. It's God that gets the glory in this. We should simply be a pass-through for the glory of God. You may see us, you may see me, you may think I've done something great, but it all goes to Him. That's what we're trying to get. But that's so important because you have to understand this. Because this is what's going to bring us back to the Satan, the adversary, Satan, and what caused him to fall. What caused the pride that was in his heart? Now, before we answer this question specifically, we need to go back just a little bit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to explain it. If we look at this picture of the Garden of Eden, okay, this is what we think of, right? This beautiful place, lush gardens. You got, you got Adam and Eve. They're hanging out over there. They're not wearing clothes because they don't have to. They're clothed in light. You got the lion and the lamb. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's very nice, right? But we don't understand what Eden is. We don't understand a lot of these things. Do you realize when it comes to our thoughts of God, heaven, hell, demons, all of that, including Eden, it comes from one of two books. The first book would be this Paradise Lost book. This was a book that was written in 1665. It's a, it's a series of poems. Most of what we believe about through church history what's been passed down about heaven hell eden all of that the idea of the snake figure slurping through you know eden all comes out of this book it's a series of poems theologically it's incredibly unsound but this is where we get a lot of our ideas and you didn't even know that right what you know typically about heaven hell all that kind of stuff does not come from the bible it comes from movies and so when you begin to read things and begin to look at it then it's like okay wait a minute the bible that goes against what i thought i must just not understand this maybe it's what you thought was wrong when it comes to hell and satan and all of that it comes from this book dante's inferno i've told you about this this is one of the drawings that come now this book was written in the 14th century 1300s is when it came from but you can see there the second layer from the top says limbo. That's where the idea of purgatory came from. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the apocryphal writings, but that's where it came from. And a lot of our ideas come from this. So you need to understand what Eden is. Eden, well, let's, let's, well before I go there, think about this, right? Paradise was lost in Genesis 3, right? Man's sin. We'll get into that more next week. But what has God been trying to do? Restore it. 
That's the plan. It's the restoration. He's going to do that. And so when God had uh, Moses build their tabernacle, what was the main purpose for that? It was so that God could be with the people in the tabernacle, right? The presence of God with the people. There's a whole bunch of strings attached and how all that worked, but that's what it was. Then came the temple. Same thing. Then came Jesus on the earth, who did what? Tabernacled among us. He came among us. Then with that, we are now what? We are the temple. We're filled with the Spirit. But ultimately, in the restoration, what's going to happen? The new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, where the people of God are going to reign with Christ, right? You guys following me? But how was it in the beginning? How we picture it, you got Adam and Eve right, cruising around there. They're, you know, maybe they're doing a little fishing. He's, he's planting some stuff, doing whatever. And then God's up in heaven. And then every once in a while, like once a day, he comes down in the cool of the day because he doesn't like heat and humidity either, apparently. He comes down in the cool of the day and he'd walk around with them, right? Guys, that is not correct. Eden was the domain of God. He created three groups of people. Well, excuse me, he didn't create three groups of people. He was one of those. You had God, the Trinity, then he created the angels, all of them, right? We see that in Job. It talks about when the, uh, when the cornerstone was laid on the earth that the angels sang. So they saw it. We don't know when they were created, but they saw it. But what was the third thing? Man. And man was his image or created in his image, and they were to go and expand, to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. They, they, so they got the Garden of Eden that was planted, man was put in it, and this was the domain of God. And this is important to understand, because when we read that thing about the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north, we have to understand that this is where God was. He's not up in heaven floating around. This is where God ruled and reigned with the angels and with man. But man being the pinnacle of his creation. And I'll show you that in a minute. You guys with me so far? I don't have a lot of time to just go into all the details of it, so I'm asking you to just kind of take my word for a little bit. Just study, do Acts 17, 11, guys. Go and look and reread your scripture. But let's look at this. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Okay, which means he's not there, right? Okay. I will exalt my throne above these stars of God. Okay, so where are they? Not the stars that he created, the little twinkling things we see at night. This is referring to the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. What's the mount? There was a mountain in Eden. Study this out. On the furthest side of the north. What does the north have to do with anything? I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You see, the domain of God was in Eden. How do we know this? Well, let me give you one verse to give you an idea. Psalm 48 Verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now this, this again, this Mount Zion on the sides of the north. You see how this lines up with what Isaiah 14 is saying. Because many will speculate, we can't prove this definitively, but where was the Garden of Eden? We believe that it is where Jerusalem was, Okay. Now, when it talks about four rivers that went through that, I'm telling you, if there was a flood of Noah and there was, uh, the rivers can change, okay? So just understand that. But this is what most people believe is that Jerusalem was where all of this was happening. We know Jerusalem was where Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain, right? We know all of that kind of stuff. We believe this was here. But what was his point? He is tabernacling with his creation. 
And as you will see next week, when man fell, they were removed from the garden and they could not go back in. There was earth around them, but this garden was a specific place in which God and the angels and the people all dwelt together. Okay? This is why it talks about the mount on the sides of the north. This is why he was talking about the mount of the congregation. That is where his people came, the angels and, the, and, and Adam and Eve, and ultimately anybody else who would have been around later on, but they weren't there yet. When they came, this is where they would be. This is the domain of God. You guys following me so far? I know I'm giving you some new information, okay? And if I had more time, we'd really build a case for this, but I'm asking you, go home. Do not have preconceived notions when you're reading your Bible. Just take it for what it says and begin to understand it because we have to throw out a lot of this bad stuff um, that we've got in our heads. So when we see this, we see what Lucifer's motivation was, but we don't know what brought this pride into his heart, right? Like why all of a sudden do you think that you're more special, okay? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 14, 11. We'll go one verse before. It says, your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you, the worms cover you. This stringed instrument. Again, he's speaking to this Lucifer figure. But what about these stringed instruments? Well, this is interesting. Then we go to Ezekiel 28, verse 12. It says, you were the seal of perfection. Again, he is speaking to this Lucifer figure. You were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. We'll talk about that more next week. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your temporals and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So was he created? Yes, he was. Okay? So his temporals and pipes. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on where? The holy mountain of God. Where was that? In Eden. It just told us he was in Eden, right? Okay. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So when we look at this simply, we see that he was puffed up because of this beauty. Now, many people, a lot of theologians will say, and you probably heard this statement, that Lucifer, Satan, whatever you want to call him, was the worship leader in heaven. Right? They say that because in Ezekiel with the timbrels and pipes, and some translations may say tambourines and flutes, um, but it, it just kind of depends. Tambourines fall into a family of instruments that would be called the percussion. Right, Pipes or, and flutes and all of that fall into this wind instrument, and the timbrels would be a stringed instrument. There are only three types of instrument. You have strings, winds, and percussion. That's it. Okay? So we see them described here all being a part of Satan, and that is why it's suggested that he is the worship leader. So he's doing this thing. We assume that. We don't know that for sure, but we're making an assumption. But why? Still does not tell us what has puffed him up. He was perfect in beauty from the day he was created. He had all of these things. So again, think about worship leaders today. Where do worship leaders typically stand? On the stage. Where do people's eyes gaze towards? Towards them. Okay? If they're doing their job right, they do what? They point people up to Christ. Okay? Now look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, now that's a weird phrase, I'll explain it in a minute. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Where? The mountain of God. Where was that? Eden. Okay. 
And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, that's what he is, he's an angel, he's a cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. So in case you didn't know, now he just explained it exactly. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. That's another weird phrase, we'll explain it in a minute. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all. All who saw you, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a whore. You shall be no more forever. And there's some prophetic stuff going on. So the abundance of your trading, right? There was two phrases that were used here. The abundance of your trading and the iniquity of your trading. Iniquity being sin. What on earth does this mean? Let me explain this to you, okay? In the Hebrew, this is how this works. I'm going to give you an example. If you were running a car dealership and I worked for you, when I sell a car, whose money is that? You, you're the owner, okay? If I sell a $1,000 car, okay, but I keep back $200 from me, and I give you the $800, that is the abundance of trading. I am keeping back something for myself that rightfully belongs to you. So what's happening here, what this is telling us, is that as this worship leader type figure, that that worship that belonged to God he began to take back for himself. It talks about him being covered in precious stones, which many believe this, this is reflection of light. And so pride filled him, causing him to seek to be worshipped instead of worshipping the king. But what caused this? Why did this happen? We talked about it in Job 38 where, where the angels were singing at the creation account and all of that. But we have to understand what the purpose... Remember, who's the pinnacle of, of, of creation? It is man, right? We know this. Hebrews 1.14 says this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? What does that mean? They serve us, right? That's what that means, okay? So angels are sent forth to minister or to serve man. 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 10 says, Of this salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to those who were, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. You see was as the pinnacle of creation, these angels were to serve them. Now here you have this beautiful creator, perfect in beauty and wisdom. And he didn't like that, apparently. He did not want to serve man. Because what does he do? He goes after man. Right? We'll see that next week in Genesis 3. In, first, or in Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, he watched mankind be created and realized he's going to serve that. It came from dirt. And he didn't like it. Pride puffed him up. Think about this. If you plug in an extension cord, do you thank the extension cord for producing the electricity? Or is it simply a mechanism of which the electricity flows? It's plugged into a greater source. That's what he was supposed to be. That's what you and I are supposed to be. 
You guys following me? You guys see what I'm saying? This is why he fell. Is because his pride puffed him up so much that he's no longer giving credit to the light or to the light bearer, but he was receiving it to himself. We should be reflectors of light, pointing that to God, not taking it for ourselves. You guys following me? Don't be like him. Everything we do is for him. This is why I say it so much. Because we want to do the opposite of what Satan did. We've got to be reflectors of light, just images of God. Hey, look at me. As, you know, Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. What does that imply? That if I'm not following Christ, stop following me. Right? See, we have to get past this. We've got to begin to understand this. Doing spiritual warfare, we've got to understand who our enemy is. It's so important. And so with that, as we go on next week, I'm going to talk about when Satan fell. And it's just so clear to me. There's so much debate in the church of when this happened and all of that. But I want you to understand why it happened, first of all. And next week, I'm going to show you when it happened. But you've got to remember the things that we talked about and where he was.